Convince your staff first before you go out and buy that instrument, before you go put through all that time and effort and, and commit that money, which will also drive you. Take a big enough loan and you're going to be pretty driven to make that thing successful in your practice. But it's it's them knowing and you being able to convince them that this is the direction that we need to be going and this is what we need to be doing. That makes a huge difference. Um, just having that full buy-in from everybody and I think that's been a, a challenge in recent years as we were blessed with having the same staff for eight, ten years and then slowly but surely we've had a lot of turnover and um, yeah, so I gotta keep kicking that can down the road of re-educating everybody and getting them all on board, but luckily it's it's ingrained in the practice, it's stuff we're already doing. Hello and welcome to the Crystal Podcast on iCode Media. Today I had a great conversation with my friend, Dr. Alex Elson. We talked about his practice, we talked about myopia management, we talked about you know incorporating new technology like the Maya for axial length measurements and topography into the practice. Uh, I really... Alex is a really interesting guy. He's a unique guy. He's got great perspectives and he finds paths to success in similar ways that a lot of other successful people find. So please enjoy our conversation. As always, be sure to subscribe to the podcast, write a review, share it with your friends and support those who support us. I want to discuss the MyDay Toric contact lens for a minute. When I'm reaching for a daily lens for my patients, I need to know that it will be re available in parameters that I want and it needs to work. This improves my chair time and my patient satisfaction. The MyDay Toric features the same optical lens design features as the most prescribed monthly replacement Toric lens on the market. MyDay Toric now completely mirrors the Biofinity Toric's parameter range. To be clear, if you find the parameter in a Biofinity Toric, you can find it in a MyDay Toric. This Toric lens design is multifaceted to ensure optimal visual acuity, lens stability, fit, and comfort. Its uniform horizontal ISO thickness and wide ballast band quickly orient the lens for better performance and simplified fitting. The MyDay material is CooperVision's softest one-day silicone hydrogel lens and features Aquaform technology combining a unique balance of high oxygen permeability and natural wettability. The result is a highly breathable lens that keeps our patient's eyes looking clear, white, and healthy. So if you haven't started utilizing MyDay Toric in your practice, I'd encourage you to reach out to your CooperVision representative to get started. The most common questions I get include, what ophthalmological codes or evaluation and management codes should I use? What ICD-10 codes do I need to bill with this CPT code? What CPT codes can be billed together and what can't? And my favorite, how do I manage a patient who has diabetes who comes in for a quote unquote routine eye exam? These questions really highlight the confusion and uncertainty that serves as a daunting hurdle for providers, makes it more challenging for them to care for their patients and provide those patients with the best opportunity for a lifetime of ocular health and clear vision. That's why we built iCode Education for this specific purpose. Our mission is to provide optometrists with resources to help you understand disease states, revenue cycles, and billing and coding so that you can put that on autopilot and truly care for your patients. Check out iCodeEducation.com. That's E-Y-E-C-O-D-E Education.com. We've developed a premier billing and coding bundle that includes all of our billing and coding resources in one place. We also have a 10% discount code just for listeners of this podcast. 
Enter the coupon code E-Y-E-C-O-D-E-M-E-D-I-A-22 at checkout. We'd love to work with you. Check out iCodeEducation.com. Well, I think, you know, Alex, I think one of the things that I've talked to you about, it's been really fun to watch you kind of, I'll call it grow up. That's not the right term, but kind of grow up in front of my eyes where I, I saw you originally as sort of a young practitioner and you're still a really young practitioner, but, you know, you've established a practice and you have uh, started kind of speaking a little bit, sharing your ideas with other people, um, both in write, written form and in verbal form. And when I watch the what's required to actually articulate the points that you articulate in written form to a mass of other people is very well thought out. And so I thought, you know, look, and I've been able to see you and connect you with you, with you at meetings. And so I, I thought, well, it'd be great for us to just have a conversation with kind of what you're doing in practice. Particularly, I'm interested in your, your approach to myopia management and your incorporation of okay. new technologies within myopia management and how you're using that in your practice to both detect and tria- and, and to modify treatments. So I want to kind of talk a little bit about that. But, um, but yeah, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Of course. Happy to be here. Honored to be here, the, honestly. Tell, tell the listeners a little bit. I know that if you've heard listen to Aaron's podcast before, uh, you've probably heard a little bit about Alex Elson. Um, but tell us kind of your, your foundation of your practice, where you started, what, what kind of your approach to practice was, especially being in California, where from the, from the sounds of it, it's saturated in, in California, and there's a lot of managed vision care. So talk about that. Um, yeah, there's a fair amount of folks out here. Uh, I am not too far away from SECO. And then we have Western right down the street too. So, um, got a lot of ODs out here. I, when I graduated, I was in the mindset of, I wanted to, to buy a practice pretty quickly. Um, pretty much everybody in my family has been a business owner, variety of different ways. My grandpa had an auto shop. My dad has a printing business. My uncle has a mortgage business and. Um, so I kind of had that modeled for me throughout life. And then optometry was an interesting opportunity in that it's our businesses are, are kind of undervalued relative to other businesses. Um, even if you look who at who undervalues them in your perspective, Alex, who, who is undervaluing our business? I think it's, it's just uh, market dynamics, right? So we have our supply and demand is capped by the fact that you really don't have non-optometrists. I know in the state of California, you can't not be an optometrist and own a practice. So things like that make it so that it's, it's, you're not gonna have the same bidding wars that you might have and, and multiples are affected, I think, a little bit in that way. And so- You're talking about you're the able to get in selling the practice, like the value of the practice is undervalued. Like if I were gonna sell my correct. practice- because, because yes. there is a finite number of purchasers who have a finite amount of dollars, mainly those purchasers would be other optometrists. I can't open my practice sale up, generally speaking, to large, large entities that would compete uh, because they're just good at business. It's, it's sort of limited. That's what you're talking about. Right. And so, I mean, that's, I think, why we've seen private equity trying to get into the space. And um, I think probably to the pleasure of most of us seeing them not do well at, at kind of integrating the space. 
um, is because of the fact that on paper, these businesses are a great business opportunity. If you could buy a, a stock or buy something that's going to be able to pay itself off in a couple of years and then just make money for you. And again, there's a ton of work that goes into it. Like this is a, this is not something that you're just buying and being passive on for the most part. Um, but that business opportunity was really interesting to me. And so always wanted to be able to do that. Wanted to be able to have the control over my own schedule and, and the way that I practice and technologies we bring into the practice and how we approach all those sort of things. So long answer to coming out, I was, I was looking at an opportunity to try and get somewhere that I could partner or purchase in a few short years. Um, and then ended up, I had something set up and kind of pivoted. I had, we had a family friend whose husband was sick. And so I kind of reached out to her to, to say, Hey, I'm here, like whatever you need. And then we sat down and had lunch and, um, kind of just made sense. Uh, she wasn't doing any specialty services. She wasn't glaucoma certified or anything like that. So she was referring all that stuff out. So I was able to kind of come in and introduce all that sort of stuff and, um, kind of grow that within the practice. Did you grow that? Um, what, what was the patient's response when you started offering those services in house? So I think the biggest part of that was I tend to be overly critical of myself or of my knowledge. And I, I don't, I don't want to talk about something unless I feel really confident in it. Like I need to be at a point where someone wants to go toe to toe with me and challenge me on the research on it, that I need to feel confident in the fact of like, I can talk circles around you. This is, I know this stuff up, down, left, right, backwards, forwards. And so for me, it, it, it wasn't too hard to have those conversations because I, I dove into it. I wasn't just taking someone else's word that this is a treatment that works or this is what I would do. And, and really I don't prescribe or do anything that I wouldn't do myself or that I wouldn't tell a family member to do or anything like that. So it, it makes it easy when you look at it from that perspective of just truly doing what's best for the patient. And if that's what you're doing, then it's easy to talk to folks about. What What's in, enlightening to me in all of this is when I talk to people who are practicing at the level you're practicing, what you've just described is this core identity, this core belief that you have, that you are the best place, right? Your practice, you've probably heard me talk about this, maybe you haven't, but your practice is the best place for that patient. And you have yeah. that belief. And so you're not questioning whether or not introducing myopia management to that patient and their child or the, the, their child, the child and their parents, um, whether it's the right thing to do, or it's a, it's something that uh, maybe worth the cost that may or may not be covered by a payer. You, you don't have to question that. You remo you've removed that barrier about whether it is the right thing. And part of your identity is like, we are the place. And Kyle Clutie and I have talked about this a ton of time. That's what we work on within total patient care within iCode is, is how do you overcome a barrier that prevents you from having the Alex Elson view of the practice that you're in and the practice you've developed and then the doctor-patient relationship that you've established. So my question to you is, you've arrived there, but what did it take for you to get there? How did you, how did you develop that sort of um, deep down core 
within yourself to say, this is who I am and this is what I believe. Mm -hmm. And um, this is why I'm recommending this so strongly to you. Uh, so for me in school, I was a thousand percent on board with cornea and contact lens. That was kind of the direction I was going. I, in second and third year, shadowed the re residents there and just kind of saw how much they're learning on the job. Like you, you're supervised, but you're learning on the job there. And then got to a point where I felt like, and I kind of applied to residencies and was just starting that process and then was sitting with a resident near the end of their residency and, excuse me, they're calling the lab, saying the same things to the lab that I would say as a third year student. And I kind of sat there and I was like, uh, I don't think this is for me. And so when I graduated, I, I committed when I wasn't going to do a fellowship, um, or residency, I committed to reading review of optometry every month, cover to cover, taking notes on it. I have a running, um, I combined all my notes into one stream on, on Microsoft Word so that if I, ever, if I ever had a question and I wanted to look back at it and figure out what, what, like who lectured on this or what article did I see this from, I could command find on that document, pull up where I found it, all my notes on it, and just really try to iron things out that way so that I did feel like I have a strong foundation, foundational background. The other thing is a lot of this stuff I'm just interested in. So it, it's really easy to dive into this stuff when it's like, oh man, what, that does that? And how does this work? And um, maybe not as much the, the underlying science and biochemistry of it all, um, to a certain degree. Some of that stuff is super interesting. Um, but yeah, I think that kind of basic level of just being curious about things helps. Um, for me, I think the other side of it, I know you talked about confidence and being able to portray that to, to patients and knowing that you're the best place for these patients to be. I would go one step further and saying your staff needs to know that too, right? So if you're looking at bringing in myopic control, dry eye, convince your staff first before you go out and buy that instrument, before you go put through all that time and effort and, and commit that money, which will also drive you, take a big enough loan and you're gonna be pretty driven to make that thing successful in your practice. But it's, it's them knowing and you being able to convince them that this is the direction that we need to be going and this is what we need to be doing. That makes a huge difference. Um, just having that full buy-in from everybody and I think that's been a, a challenge in recent years is we were blessed with having the same staff for eight, 10 years. And then slowly, but surely we've had a lot of turnover and, um, yeah. So I keep kicking that can down the road of re-educating everybody and getting them all on board. But luckily it's, it's ingrained in the practice. It's stuff we're already doing. So it's something that they just kind of come on board and it's, it's here. I think that's the other point that, I, that you just made that is, that's very insightful whenever bringing on new stuff. It's almost like this culture of continual change and evolution. That's the other side of our profession where you and I can, can um, forget the value of that. You know, like you said, well, I could I could acquire this practice and pay the loan off in a few years, right? Like, like I could be the loan. Not only can the loan be paid off, but you can actually be positively generating revenue as that pay, as that loan is being paid off once you purchase a practice. 
terms of undervaluing a, a practice. But the second thing is like once you've paid that off or in that entire process of paying that loan off, you're continually evolving and refining. Uh, that is the, the mark of a successful practice in my mind. If you look at practices like Lori Sorensen's, for example, she's been on the podcast recently with Aaron. And if you really listen to the core of what Lori's doing, she's constantly, constantly thinking about ways to do things differently. And it's not necessarily a dramatic difference. It's this sort of refinement. Like, why do I do it this way? Is this the best way for me to do it? Or can I do something different that's going to be better over time? And, um, and I think when, when I watch really successful practices, they, they do that very well. They, they may not do it intentionally. I, I think oftentimes they embrace that aspect of it, but, um, but they, don't, they don't set into it with the idea of we're going to have this continual evolution in the practice, meaning we're going to bring new devices, new treatments to our patients on an ongoing basis. And that's just going to be part of the culture as opposed to when, when uh, oftentimes we think, okay, if I get this practice and I buy this destination and I make this money back and I pay it back, then I'm going to have this much money extra every month. It's sort of this finite thinking as opposed to thinking like, I'm going to make this payment. I'm going to be able to make it pay back. And by the time I'm done paying with it, this paying for that practice that I purchased, it's probably going to look a lot different than the practice that I purchased or the practice that I started. But that's on purpose, right? It's a continual evolution and a reevaluation of what do I want this practice to look like in one year and five years and 10 years? And sometimes that's hard to do. It's hard to think about in, in those long-term duration, in that long-term duration. But by, but by having this, this philosophy and culture of continual evolution, then your staff is always on board with slight change. They might not like it every time you do it, but they're used to it. Well, and that's the other thing too that I found. I uh, within the past month, we, we brought on some new folks, and with all the turnover that we've had in, in one of my offices in particular, I've kind of told people, "Hey, I, I'm open to whatever. You've worked in another office. If they did something better over there that that we should do over here, tell me. Like if it's better, I'm let's change. I, I'm tied to nothing. I'm fully open to the best idea wins." And something happened with in the EHR. We run Crystal. Sorry, am I okay to say like? Yeah, say, say, what, say I'm fine. Yeah, like you, okay. you can say whoever you want to say. So we love Crystal. I love Crystal. Look at it if you don't. Um, <laughs> quick little shout out to those folks. No financial financial uh, disclosures to make there. Um, but I had made a button on there so that when I click eyes in two, eyes in three, it populates 0 0.4, 0 0.6, 0 0.8, one diopter on the ad and puts it in there because I wanted that printed off on the prescription so that if the patient goes, takes it to Costco. They can't make that. Like it's, it just kind of shows the patient straight ahead that they're getting a little bit of bait and switch unintentionally. But I recently found out that I've been running it this way for three years at, the, at my other office and that's been creating a problem for them. Every time they go to bill that it has that weird ad in there, um, I guess VSP doesn't like it. And so they have to kick it out and do all this other stuff. And I didn't know that until one of my new opticians brought it up. And then I brought it up to my office manager over there. I was like, does this happen over there? Thinking that it was just an issue that we had to work on at this office. And she's like, oh yeah, it, it does. But we just get around. I'm like, well, I don't have to do that. <laughs> like, why right. am I creating work for you guys? 
we don't like we don't end up having very many patients ask for the prescription to walk with it anyways and so i'd rather spend the extra two seconds to put it back in there when we need to um but sorry yes i i agree with what you're saying i am maybe not cut from that same cloth as Lori. I think Lori is a, a unique human being and absolutely murders it and everything she does. But um, for me, I, I keep finding myself going, okay, I'm going to buy this, this widget. I'm going to do this other thing. And then I'm, I'm just going to be happy. I'm going to have everything I need. And then it's like, okay, now I bought RF and IPL. All right, I'm happy. No, but got to get the low level light too. You know, I need yeah. that. And now it's like, oh, but my slit lamp has a camera on it at the other office. I probably need that over here too. So I'm going to get that. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, yeah. No, it's all so, good. I, it's all yeah, better. Yeah. I mean, and, and I think that that kind of parlays us into the conversation related to myopia management and sort of your approach to myopia management and, and maybe mm-hmm. even widgets that you have incorporated that have been valuable. Uh, and where you see you're using uh, those that technology. So, first of all, myopia management. What's your approach? So I'm not. I don't know. My brain went here first. I'm not treating hyperopes yet. I think I could see us getting there. I think there's data, and I don't. I don't. Uh, I don't hate on anybody who does. I think if if my wife was a little myope, I'm a little hyperope. Um, my kid loves being outside it just doesn't have a lot of risk for for development of this stuff but if my wife was a minus 10 and i was a minus six uh i consider it if my son wasn't hitting age expected norms i mean i wouldn't be opposed to doing those sort of things especially when we start having when the glasses get fda approved things like that i think so pause there real quick pause there real quick i don't want to steal your thunder but pause Mm -hmm. there just for the listeners who may not be aware of what, what you're talking about, Alex, there's some studies that suggest that if you're, if you're not, if you are not a specific level of, if you don't have enough protective hyperopia at certain ages, you're at greater risk for developing myopia and higher amounts of myopia later in life. So what Alex is proposing is that there are some, if you haven't heard about this, there are some that are saying, let's intervene at low amounts of hyperopia when those amounts of hyperopia are not commensurate with what you'd expect for AIDS, age distributed norms. So, for example, if, if you saw a kid that was, you know, uh, that was five years old and a plus a quarter or six and plus a quarter, you might do, start doing some sort of intervention with that patient to to delay the onset of myopia. It might include outdoor activity counseling. It might include even and I actually wonder about this often is um, and, and I haven't seen data to back it up. But if part of myopia is driven by accommodative efforts and convergence efforts. Can low amounts of plus and patients who can tolerate small amounts of base and prism could that even could that even delay the onset of, of myopia, right. it, you know, because of convergence and accommodation and how they drive together. So, in any case, that's what Alex is talking about, and um, and so I'm not there either, Alex. I'm, I'm not there either. I, I wouldn't criticize those people, but I think you made a really interesting nuanced point is that. If you were a 10 doctor myope and your wife was a 10 doctor myope, you might take a different approach to your six-year-old plus a quarter uh, child, right? Yeah, um, and just to spiral on that and give the listeners like one number, remember, six years old plus 0.75. Lock that in. That's what you'd expect. Less than that. Right. That's the age expected norm. That's the only one that I have committed to memory. 
So I'm not a, not a genius. I can remember one number, uh, but that's the one where I look at, and it's uh, it's an easy one to remember for me for whatever reason. And so I look at that and I go, okay, if you're six in your Plano, I'm concerned. I'm gonna watch you a little closer. I'm gonna look at your risk profile. I'm gonna talk to your parents, and then. Unfortunately, I'm going to be predicting the future a little bit and next year you're going to come back and be a myope and they'll go, oh man, you told us this. And then all of a sudden they're going to, it, let's put it this way. If you don't have that conversation at that point in time, you're behind eight ball already. You're, you're already behind the game because of the fact that that parent needs to hear it a couple times before they're going to buy into it. Present the idea, show them before their kid's even myopic that this is the direction they're going. And then when you bring up the fact of we should slow this down, they might wait one more year and maybe their kids a minus a half, minus 75. But then you're intervening so much faster and earlier than you would otherwise. How are you incorporating, well, I guess I should ask you, are you incorporating um, axial length or A-scan technology into those comprehensive exam patients when they're young? What's your, well, are you incorporating that? Selectively. So we're not doing axial length on every single person. Um, everybody in our myopic control programs gets it done every single time that we see them. Um, our topographer has axial length integrated with it. So um, that just happens anytime we take a topography of somebody. But um, yeah, not routinely on, on all kids, but anyone that I'm worried about, we'll ask them to do that. And um, yeah, I guess full disclosure, I, I only have axial length at one office. So so the question oh, is, okay. so you, have the, you have the Topcon Maya. Tell me about the functionality of that in your practice in the workflow. Patient comes in, you say you want a, when are you getting your topography and your axial length? So I guess for a comprehensive exam, it would be done on the way out. Um, on the way out. It's on the way out or it, I guess it, it kind of depends on how the exam goes. So. If we are, if we have a patient that we're already concerned about uh, myopic control with, say I had that conversation with them last year, they're that six-year-old plus 0.5 or 0.0, um, then I would put an alert in Crystal so that when the patient comes in next year, when they call a schedule, the staff knows to put on the schedule, hey, we want a topography of this patient on the way in so that I can get axial length. Um, if it's a brand new patient walks into my office, they're eight, 10 years old, whatever. Um, they're not going to get that as part of the normal pretest cause that's just going to bog us down. Um, if I find it to be clinically appropriate, um, I will request it or I might, if, if I'm thinking this is a patient that actually needs to go down the myopic control, um, treatment path, then we'll have them back for a consult. We'll talk through their different options. Um, and at that consult, we'll take axial length. We'll talk to them about it um, and go through things that way. Okay, so patient comes in, comprehensive exam. You identify that, that they're at risk for myopic progression. Then you talk about this consult. So tell me, comprehensive mm -hmm. exam, what does that sound like to me as the parent uh, that I'm going to be coming back or I'm going to bring my child back for a consult? So essentially, I'll just start off and say hey you know this is age expected norms this is where we expect your kid to be, kid to be um, based off of your prescription based off their prescription based off of their change in prescription um, any of the above all of the above I'm a little worried about their rate of progression there are things that we can do to slow this down 
some further testing that needs to happen on that, a lot of conversation that can be had to make sure that we're doing what is most clinically appropriate for your child. I'm going to email you some information, some links, some different things that you can look at and research. Feel free to email me right back. But on your way out, I'm going to have you schedule a, a follow-up appointment with the staff. Um, and this is then where I'm kind of paging in the staff. And then I'll, I'll kind of run through that. Hey, you know what? I need a myopic control follow-up or myopic control consultation with this patient. Um, and then I have like templated emails and things that I'll send them. Um, I'll use the vision source myopia calculator a lot of times. Um, the, I'm trying to remember the name. There's an infographic put out by like the International Institute on Myopia that I'll send along. I try and send them one thing for me and then a couple sources from outside of my office so that they're seeing this isn't just some weird little thing that they're hearing from in my office, some weird thing that I'm doing. Um, they know that it's a bigger deal than just that. Uh, and then I, I'm trying to think of, I've ever really had a patient respond to that email with questions. They usually just come in with questions to that follow up, And then again, now they've seen it and heard it multiple times. They're more likely to really do what's right for what's not right for the kid, what's best for their child and kind of move forward with the program. And so then, um, so at that comprehensive exam, uh, and you have a prescription change. Do you have any hesitancy from the from the parent to um, wait on filling a new prescription if they're going to have a myopia control consult? What's the response there? Like, have you seen a decline, or how do you prevent a decline for patients that are like, well, we didn't. They come back the next year and they tell you, well, we didn't get the new prescription because we were going to come back and then we canceled that appointment because something else came up and we never rescheduled it. Now Johnny has gone for another year without changing their prescription and their, my, like oh. there, there's this, does that ever happen? And how do you prevent that from happening? No, I, I think it's part of the fact that, and this is in no way, shape or form why I'm doing it this way. I, the sure. way that I've described this to associate docs and, and staff and things is, you know, I, I can't squeeze all this into a comprehensive exam. I'm doing, even though it might feel like I'm doing the patient a favor by not having them come back, I'm doing them a disservice. I cannot do in five minutes what I can do in 20 or 30. They're not going to get out of it what they should get out of it. Um, and nobody wins in that situation. So having not gone super in depth on the myopic control side of things and just saying, hey, making my recommendations clear. So our our handoff protocol is to reiterate the chief complaint to the patient, um, tell them two different ways, at least two different ways that we're gonna help them out and then say when we want them back. So, hi, Mr. Smith or Mrs. Smith, you know, um, or hi, Carla, this is Mrs. Smith. She came in with issues of uh, blur at distance. So I'm gonna recommend updating your clear glasses or sunglasses, and then I'll see you back for a comprehensive exam next year. Don't know why I chose an adult, but the same thing applies for my open control kids. So I would, uh, let's see them back in a couple weeks for my open control, control console. I'm gonna email them a bunch of information, blah. So it goes on the same, same way that a handoff would for anybody else, except I'm just adding in that little blip at the end of, instead of seeing them back for their annual exam, come back for your my open control console, and I'm gonna send them some info. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I think it's well, well thought out and it, it, it makes it similar. The thing I like about it is that it makes it similar to the other stuff you're doing. You have matched again. I, when I find that people are successful doing 
um, additional things in practice at a very high level, they find out things that they have done in practice that have worked well, and they follow those same uh, steps for this new thing. And related to that, tell me about um, how you get paid for that consult. I don't charge for it. So on on sclerals, I'll charge a hundred dollar consult fee that we just roll into, um, and mainly because most time at a scleral consult, I'm putting a scleral on, and I'm basically doing right. a fit. Just if they pay, then I do the mental exercise to order it. Um, but for my open control, I don't. Um, not to say you should or shouldn't. Uh, we don't have an issue, and I think maybe if I had an issue where most of the people that have those consults don't sign up um then i might consider doing it just to kind of weed out the folks who and even if it's weird to say even if you make it a ten dollar fee it it's weird how just putting any value on it will weed out those folks who are not interested um Mm -hmm. and so we don't charge anything for it i don't have issues with no shows to it i don't and that may be partly because we do a little bit of hand-holding on that of, of I'm emailing them directly. Um, they're getting information, and then I have hopefully, in that short amount of time I spend on it in the comprehensive exam, I've hopefully laid out enough of an argument to at least have them interested. I think what's important there is acknowledging if you're going to if you're going to not charge for that consult you're doing that on purpose what i what i don't want listeners to think about is not doing anything because they're they're worried about do i charge something or do i not charge something i think what's important is make a decision know you can refine it over time if it starts to get to the point where you're like look i'm i am um our conversion in our patient population is so low that i have to charge something to to have these conversations with patients I'm giving enough value that, but maybe our patient population just decides I'm not going to do it. Well, okay, then you have to get compensated for the time and the value that you're that you're providing for that patient. But if if your conversion rate is high, you're just calculating that amount of dollars that you're spending for the or that amount of time that represents a dollar value when patients choose not to proceed with myopia management. And the totality of time has to that you're that you're um, generating revenue from winds up being uh, greater than the time that you would have, wouldn't have generated revenue, right? So to say that another way, it's your acceptance of myopia management is so high that you can afford to miss a, uh, every now and then on a consult that, caught, that generates no revenue because, of, because the totality of those patients who are choosing myopia management is high enough that you're generating enough revenue from them to, to, to compensate you for the time that patients aren't, um, aren't coming in. And I think the the important part about that is you haven't wrung your hands about what the best way to do is. I, I know lots of people, we've had them on the podcast that absolutely charge a consultation fee. I would, I do in my practice, but, um, but it's not necessarily the right way for every single practice. It's just that uh, what I don't want people to do is say, do I charge? Don't I charge? I would say, make the decision, do it. And if it doesn't work out, be flexible enough to change that over time. Yeah, and that's Did you always start? Is, Did you always start with that? With not charging? With not charging, yeah, for that consult. Yeah, I I I've never charged for those consults. I have I think 
and I have no problem with doing it. Uh, I have, I am the classic optometrist on a lot of this stuff where it's like, man, I, uh, I, I should charge for this, but, uh, it, it'll not, it might make me recommend it less. It might make mm. me less passionate about it. Well, that's and that's a me thing. That's a me thing. That has nothing. That's just yeah. me looking in the mirror being like, ah, I don't feel good about it. So, and I don't need to, so I don't care. Uh, and again, that's like a, a business thing that, yeah, sure. I could charge for it. And, um, I don't know what that would do for me really. I don't know how much that would move the needle on all this stuff. And the way I look at it too, is a lot of times if someone doesn't commit the first year, they do next year. They do like, it's not, it, I'm not going to say it's never a wasted consult because I, I'm sure there are people that have walked out and never come back. But I find that the majority of folks, if they don't commit that year, it is something, again, we have the data. We know on this stuff, if you're picking the right patients and talking to people who are actually at risk, they're going to progress and you're going to see them next year. And you're going to be in a position to dance around saying, I told you so. And the parents are just going to be waiting for you to bring it up again. So they can just go, yeah, you know what, let's do that this year. And it's like, okay. I did the consult last year. Now I don't have to do it this year and they just sign up. So yep. it's, uh, I should charge for it, but I don't. So well, I, no, what's interesting to me, Alex, no judgment either way. You know, no, you know, my answer to it. My answer is your time is valuable and you should charge mm -hmm. for it. That's what Chris Wolf would yeah. tell you to do, but that's not the right answer for your practice right now because you, you have, you have said, look, I, I have a different model. I'm accepting of that different model. I am an optometrist, which I, I like that you acknowledge that because uh, that's the first step, Alex, to recover yeah, yeah. from it. <laughs> yeah. You know, like like the 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 idea that um, so I, I wonder. Let me ask you this: Does your um, does your dad and his printing business give away services on purpose, or give away product um, on purpose? Is there an equivalent in his business to to that think, line is. of thinking that you have? Oh, there is. So yeah, when I was president for, for Orange County Optometrist Society, uh, we, they'd always like printed things at, at Kinko's band. I'd print off banners for our big events that had all the sponsors on them and stuff. And, um, I got a quote from him instead of going to FedEx or whatever. And it was like a third of what we'd been paying at FedEx. I was like, mm. dad, what are, what are you doing? Like why? <laughs> Like, you know that, that you're undercharging here. Like the, I think I just doubled it and was like, it's already cheaper than what we were doing before. Like just, and it's going to be way better, uh, than what we had before as well. And so he does that stuff and it's the same idea where he's, he, he price competes with places that he shouldn't have to price compete with and doesn't have to, his clients and everything know that, that what he's putting together is a total different product than what you're going to get. It's the corollaries are actually really interesting. Uh, I've never really thought about that, but um, you can get business cards online, all that sort of stuff. But I'll tell you, when people pick up my business cards and they feel them, and they, <laughs> they, they I get comments all the time on how nice they are. Um, I don't know what that does for business, but I'm not in sales, so <laughs> if I was a salesman, I, I think that would be something that uh, that maybe affected my business outcome, but. Um, it's, yeah, it is interesting, know. like, you know, you bring up business cards and just a, a comment. Have you ever seen um, 
American Psycho? No, Patrick Bateman. You have not seen that movie? Come I might have. I don't know. I'm not a. No, you didn't. You did not see it. Big like movie and yeah, probably not. Yeah. So um. Sorry. Do you want to just hang up now, or are we still? No, 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 no. I think you should watch it. It's it's a cult classic. Um, I saw it. I was at Iowa State um, for my freshman year, and they they did a uh, preview of it in like a flat gym on a on a projector. So you had no, you weren't in sitting sitting in an auditorium, but it wound up being like a cult classic, like a total cult classic. I can't believe you haven't seen it. Uh, Yeah, yeah, I know. Look it up. So um, (laughs) so it's. uh, anyway, they, they have this scene in there where they're all comparing business cards and, uh, and every business card, you know, to the viewer looks exactly the same, but you know, it's bone with, with, uh, Navy and ivory with this. And so, and, and, and this, and Patrick Bateman, the main character, uh, in the movie is getting jealous about these business cards that look exactly like his business card. But um, but he's like getting upset, jealously upset, and obsessively so, because uh, because he thinks their business cards are so much better um, because of the way they're described. Um, but I I only bring that up because it's comical to me that you brought up business cards, and I and I feel like I don't get jealous about business cards. I'm not comparing myself to Patrick Bateman, but um, but I can tell when somebody has it, like when somebody hands me a business card that's like been thought out and and very good quality i'm like that's a really nice business card right so i suspect that your patients like i don't even care about business cards i don't carry me on myself i i I don't like to give them out because i i usually they they go in the trash but if somebody gives me a nice business card i feel it and i and i and i'm impressed by it so i think to your point probably patients do um there are some patients that that feel your business cards that uh are impressed by it i suspect well I mean, I see it. I see patients at the counter, like feel them. I've got, I'll write notes on the back of little things that, that maybe I want them to look at or, um, back in the day before we carried retain in the office or, or different things like that, I write things down there. Um, and I do see patients like feel them and, and stuff like that. And so, um, next time I see it, guess what you're getting? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> business card. I'll be slipping one to you. Yeah, fair enough. Getting young presbyopes into progressive lenses can be tough, but it doesn't have to be. Verilux Liberty 3.0 lenses are an introductory solution for new and young presbyopes, and they are available in select ad powers. This lens provides all-in-one balanced vision for an accessible and great first-time progressive lens wearing experience. Learn more about Verilux Liberty 3.0 lenses and get free resources to help start the progressive lens conversation with young presbyopes at slorepro.com slash Verilux. My patients with macular degeneration want clear and succinct recommendations from me related to products and solutions that can benefit their long-term ocular health and vision. To do this for my patients, I need to be confident that what I'm recommending will have a benefit to them. And that's why my supplement of choice is MacuHealth. MacuHealth is specifically formulated and clinically proven to rebuild and maximize macular pigment over a lifetime. This results in enhanced visual performance and aids in the treatment and prevention of age-related macular degeneration. 
I've discussed carotenoid absorption on this podcast with Dr. Nolans and Stringham, and MacuHealth uses a patented process called micromycel technology. And this technology is clinically proven to increase carotenoid concentrations at the target tissue and deliver the highest level of bioavailability studied to date. MacuHealth has been great for my patients. We really feel like we have the ability to help those patients in all categories of macular degeneration. If you're not utilizing MacuHealth for your patients, Check it out for yourself by contacting your MacuHealth representative. Yeah, fair enough. So wait, wait. Let me let me ask you then. You know, you brought up you brought up um, the Maya, and I want to explore like why did you pick the Maya over any other axial length measurement topography, uh, like any other? Well, why did you start incorporating uh, axial length measurements? How does it change your your approach? And then why did you pick the Maya over something else? So I had looked at some of these like laser based units where it just was kind of a fear thing for me of you buy a used IOL master or something like that. And it's got a certain amount of shots on it. You don't know how many shots have been taken and um, you could buy that thing. It could be worth nothing tomorrow. Um, so that was part of it. Uh, the other part of it was just having all that sort of stuff in one unit. Um, I had talked to, um, people on the back end of TopCon about, you know, is this something that I would be able to do wave with? Um, and I think that's still in the works or something. Um, so it, it just seemed like a all in one unit that I could get along with. Um, axial length for me was sort of a value proposition initially. It was a differentiator as far as I've had patients ask, um, you know, why, why are you, why are you more expensive than the guy down the street or whatever? It's something we can point to and be like, Hey, at the time we were the only people around doing it. So yeah, we have more data. We're watching your kid in different ways. We're going to be able to catch changes that other offices might not be able to catch. Um, and so it was part of that value proper proposition and differentiator. And mind you, like you can practice my open control very well without it is essentially just as well without axial length, but it does. Once you get into it, there are some things that are interesting with it. You can catch some of these kids that are just, they got some big eyeballs to start and you know that that is another risk factor to look at size of the eye. And it's a whole different, um, you can plot out age expected norms on that side of things too. So it's just one more data point, um, that I felt would, would be quite useful. I started looking at the Maya. It was called, it was the Aladdin M and then it was called the Maya in Europe where it had my biography on it. Um, so that was something that I was really interested in. And then, um, now it's finally getting that. So that's nice. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, the, if we, if you talk about the case for axial length, which Cheryl Chapman and I have discussed a number of times, I agree with you. I think, I think she, I don't want to put words in her mouth. I agree with you. I think you can practice myopia management at a very high level without axial length measurements. We have a Maya in our practice as well. And, um, and it does give you more information and it does give you this threshold for if, if what we're trying to control for is the ramifications of axial elongation, then 
we are incomplete in simply measuring refractive error. We, we are being incomplete that way because you're trying to, you know, if, if you're if you're not, and that's what what you'll see in a lot of studies as well is, you know, if you look at at studies about different interventions, what I really want to see is an intervention that is going to do both uh, slow progression of myopia, refractive error, but also slow progression of axial length. And if you can't right. see both, it's hard to know exactly are you having the essential effect that you want. Um, or you're just treating refractive error or managing refractive error. The other thing I think that's, that's helpful from an axial length standpoint is if you really want to know if a patient's progressing and you are doing orthokeratology, yes, you can wash out the patient to truly know, but you right. know they're holding steady if, if the axial length measurement is good and you're getting a plus 50 re, uh, refraction once the contact lenses are off year after year after year, you know things are stable at that point. Mm -hmm. I think that's another powerful why behind axial length measurements. Tell me uh, other stuff, like do you actually, have you gotten to the point where you select or recommend different interventions based on uh, axial length uh, numbers? Are are you changing your treatment in in regards to initial steps or that doesn't matter, it's only about progression at that point? For me, I, it's really I'm looking at it as a progression tool, um, so that doesn't really change the initial thing. So I'm looking at like MEM and kind of ocular alignment things like that to determine you know is this kid going to do well with atropine or is this some so I've had conversations with patients or actually parents about that recently about you know hey we do tend to get better control than what these studies are showing and it's because I don't think in these studies, like the LAMP study or anything like that, they're not checking MEM to see which of these kids is going to do well with atropine. They're just putting them all on atropine. I I don't think, I actually, I can't say for a fact, not not that I've already shoved my foot in my mouth. Um, I don't (laughs) think that they did that stuff. But for us, a lot of our kids are stopping and, and it's, if I remember off the top of my head, I don't think they looked at MEM. I don't think they looked at accommodative accuracy uh, or accommodative lag, but they did look at amplitude of accommodation, but that was only in response to like the reduction in amplitude of accommodation uh, that would occur with atropines. I, they weren't using it as a screening tool to know who was going to progress. There were some studies that looked at um, patients who were ESO and had a high accommodative lag uh, in progressives, that was an early study, probably 10 years ago or so. Uh, but, but I don't think they did that in lamp or Adam one or two. I think you're, I think you're accurate about that. Good. We don't have to cut it out then. Um, well, if we were not going to cut it out, we'll just, we'll just, Oh, I know. That was just a joke. As a teaching, (laughs) as a teaching point. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it, it, so I, I think there's things like that that definitely guide my decision making with regards to what I'm recommending to uh, parents and kids. And then I'm, I'm also a, a pretty hard and fast believer in, because I'm sure you've had this, I've definitely had this where parents come in, they go, hey, I want my kid to do ortho okay. And then I go, well, hey, Johnny, what do you think about context? And like, no, I don't want to touch my eye, no way. And I'm like, Look at the parent and go, I'm not doing it with a kid. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> like, I, yep. Your kid has to want it. Um, and it's going to be awesome. They're going to love it when they do it. But I'm just not going to force them to do something they don't want to do yet. Um, and yeah, I, I, we've had a, a couple kids that 
their parents paid for things they said they wanted it and then they don't do it and then we end up having to change programs and work with the parents to to make it work and other kids that just full-on don't do it um so yeah well so then um in in uh there's some tracking software i i, I keep coming back to this because i want to kind of work through your through your workflow you mentioned um the vision source myopia progression tool but there's also some tracking software within the maya itself have you used that at all? Um, not much. We have, so within Crystal, like on my template, I built it out so that I could um, plot it out there. So yeah. when the patient so You can plot in, out a template we, within Crystal to do that. Yeah, so it'll actually graph it and everything for me too, but the, uh, the one on the Maya looks better, but the Maya's not in my exam room, so. Yeah, um, well that's, uh, I'll tell you, that is what I've liked with, with ours is that like it, it can actually show intervention points as well. So it'll flag oh. those intervention points and then, um, and then it does plot it out and it will plot it out with refractive error also, which I think is, is a nice characteristic. And we will, mm. will kind of bring that up within the software itself. Um, but yeah, I think, I think the point is, is that you figure out where you like it, where it's easily accessible to you, where you like the graphical representation, whether that's on your device or in your EHR or on a third party, uh, you know, um, platform like, like Insight that, that actually houses that, um, that vision source data uh, and that, that progression data that you've already input. I think that's the important part, right? So you're tracking this over time to be able to say, yes, we are stable or no, we aren't stable. And when did we make these other intervention changes? I think that's really helpful. Are you, so you're doing it on, on like, what's your protocol with Axel? Like, are you doing that on every patient, not to we, flip yeah. the script and put you on? No, 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 yeah. Um, no, that's fine. Uh, we do axial measurements on patients under the age of 16 in our practice. And uh, so every patient that comes in for a comprehensive exam gets an uh, axial length measurement on the Maya. And, um, and then we do input that number, our text input that number into our EHR. Um, and most of the time, like the first place I look is refractive error. And to be honest with you, um, I'm looking at refractive error 90% of the time. Uh, the reason we capture a axial length on every patient is because the Maya has been so efficient and it's pretty quick to get that measurement. And it's already housed, like the way the patient sits down is they sit down one chair, they have their optos, they have their auto refraction, they have their A scan, right? So they're just basically rotating the chair and topography as well on the Maya. So we, we used to have, or we still do have it. We have a, um, a separate uh, topographer. It's actually a really good topographer and it's a myographer as well that we had in that, that existing pretest room, but there was a bog down because we were using that, uh, that other topographer and myographer uh, in that pretest room for topography on patients with who are contact lens wearers, but um, but we are also using it as a mybographer for patients with ocular surface dysfunction. So what was happening is we're trying to get into the normal kind of comprehensive pretest room for dry eye measurement and for comprehensive eye exam measurements, right? So when we bought the Maya, what what we were looking at was like, man, I already have a topographer that's really good and I like a lot, but. Um, so how do I justify this? Well, for us, it was it, it, after we kind of wrapped our minds around and looked at these bog down points, it's like, okay, well, let's move this topographer with a mybographer into a separate room. We don't do mybography on every patient. Uh, I don't think that's as 
I know there's a lot of people that think that's really important for the story for, for ocular surfaces function. And I agree with them. I just don't think it's that important at the comprehensive exam, but that's just, that that's, it's just a patient flow thing, right? It's not necessarily a right or wrong. It was just a patient flow thing in our practice. So we moved that into a separate area where we can just have our osmolarity, our inflammatory, our mybography, and then we'll have like a topography in there uh, if we needed it for um, for like if we got a bog down in topographer topography, or, or we were using a specialty lens that we had already, or a specialty cornea, you know, a, a irregular cornea that we already had acquired data on with that device, uh, and then we put the Maya in for kind of our um, our routine patients for topography and routine axial length measurements. Um, and then our myopia management axial length measurements over time. And that seems to have worked really well to move that ocular surface testing outside and using it um, and using it. This is sort of our workhorse for our patients under the age of 16. And then we just gotcha. uh, incorporate that uh, in, in the myopia management. So I won't say much about it if the patient's hyperopic or the patient is um, is uh, lowly myopic or the parents don't, you know, but if I'm seeing it now they're myopic and I'm seeing it like, Oh, I wonder if this is changing. Hey, and then that's another point that I'm bringing up with a patient. Like, yeah, we're, we're, we talked about this last year, you know, it's okay that we've decided to do X, Y, and Z, but we're seeing, uh, changes here. That means we need to adjust our treatment or we need, you know, we're not seeing changes. So we're, we're, we're very good. Right. So like you said, it's another point. Uh, and then I, I think the other thing, Alex, that I am interested in kind of exploring with you is you said at the beginning of this conversation, and I'll be respectful of your time, this probably will be our, the oh, last question I have. Um, but how much do you think, even though we've kind of both acknowledged that axial length isn't, it is very important, but not, not, uh, but myopia management can be done without axial length. Mm-hmm. How much do you feel like it helps you with your confidence? Having that, having a device that helps you with that, um, investing in that device, how much do you think that that helped being able to approach the patient with the confidence and the identity that this is the best place for you? So for me, I don't think a ton, honestly. I think it's a nice, uh, like, I would go, yeah, you can definitely practice myopic control without it. And you should, if you don't have one, you should practice myopic control without it. Like not, not like a can it's, it's, you should it different conversation of like, should you do ortho K without a topographer? Mm. Yeah. Like I, that's a different argument entirely, but certainly I think it makes me feel better. The point you brought up about orthokeratology is, is another reason why I brought that in of just having something where it's, you can know for a fact that that kid is not changing. This is what we're tracking. And I think that's the beautiful thing where you're at, where you're doing that on all the comprehensive patients is you do have, like you said, those inflection points of, Hey, look at that trend. And then look now at that trend since we've started doing the, the Maya or not the Maya since we started doing the myopic control intervention, we can see that the axial length has leveled off um, versus at other offices. They're just going to assume. Right. And um, that that's fine. We know based off data that it's working. Right. And so it, or that it should be working. Right. Um, So I don't, for me, confidence wise, it, it didn't change much on that. Like, I don't think, 
I don't know that that necessarily parents are are wowed by it. Like it's not something that when they're in the program that they're coming back and be like, let me see those axial link numbers. They mm. the prescription is always going to be paramount to them um, as far as looking at how that's changed and. and us having that obviously lets us sit there and, and with greater confidence in a patient with ortho K saying it hasn't changed. Everything looks good. It's also something that when you have those patients where maybe you're on the fence, it definitely makes me more confident in going, yeah, we need to make a change. We need to combine treatments. We need to, or you know what? It, it's looking like maybe a little bit of a change. Axial length doesn't agree. Um, let's hold off for three months. Let's see you back and let's see what, what happens here. Um, and, and kind of going thing about things that way. Um, so maybe not the answer that you were expecting me to say, no, no, but no. I, it's, I, uh, I had no expectations. I was just, I was just curious to see what, what it did to your perspective. Yeah. And I think it, it, it's going to be different for every person, right? So for me, I'm generally, I feel confident in my ability to do things. So it's, I'm the classic military, the C1, do one, teach one, and I'm good. Like I feel, feel totally fine with it. Um, so for other folks may need a little bit more confidence. Maybe, maybe that data helps them feel more confident in those recommendations and making those changes. And maybe that makes a huge, huge difference for them. But for where I'm at, I, I, it, it doesn't change much for me on the confidence side of things but uh, overall in certain situations absolutely but um changing the way that i practice maybe not maybe not a ton um i think it's interesting alex yeah i think it's interesting because you know um I, I think about what is holding somebody back from really investing into their patients in myopia management and um one, right, like it might be the case that um, you're concerned about price. So how are you going to what did, what do you have to do to get over price Two, it might be, do I have technology in my practice that allows me to administer um, this confidently? Sometimes that's ab an absolute like I'll talk to people and they'll say, I, I am not going to do myopia control until I can do topography and I can do axial length, mm -hmm. right? And that's where they need to, to get in order to be um, happy and confident with it. And then uh, there's other people that say, like, uh, look, I need to just start. Like you're saying, like, I need to do one. I need to, I need to see one. I need to do one. I need to teach one. And by once I do that, I'm ready to go. So I, I think the, the important part to me about this entire conversation related to myopia management, to Maya, to axial length, to topography is like recognizing what you need in order to remove the barriers that patients will have to good care and good and care that uh, will allow them to have options. Um, and whatever that needs to happen, whatever happens there, uh, I think is what's important, what the clinician needs to consider. And um, whether, like I said, whether it is uh, understanding the price, having a new device, um, or having just better conversations or digging into the literature, you got to figure out a way to remove that barrier so that you're not the barrier to the patient. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that's huge, right? We, we do our patients a disservice just by being too nervous to bring up, um, 
you know, for me more relevant recently is more the, the dry side of stuff. So the IPL, the RF, all, all that sort of stuff. It, it's patients are interested. It helps people. Why am I not recommending it? What here, is it truly just money? Why is that? And I mean, sorry, this, we could go down a whole nother rabbit hole. Yeah, no, we, well, listen, listen, I will be respectful of your time. I know you got kids to, to get to bed and, um, I'm, I'm really grateful for all the stuff you've done just to, to kind of, it's been fun to watch you grow. It's been fun to see you, uh, sort of expand what you're doing. Thanks so much for coming on my podcast and chatting about what you're doing. I think it's been a lot of fun to, to, to see that. And I hope to, to be able to do it again soon. Yeah. I happy to be here honestly honored for the invite so um thanks for having me and yeah see you next time you're welcome